Hello everyone, I'm Andy Pittman. Today we'll be reading from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 through chapter 4, verse 4. Again, that's 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 4, 14. If you can, I would like for you to stand for the reading of God's word. 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 4, 4. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good word. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. This is the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. Thank you, Andy. And good morning, everyone. Uh, My name is David. I'm one of the pastors here at Remedy. We have been going through a sermon series which unpacks for us our uh, mission and vision statement. These are derived from the Great Commission, which is the mission of the Universal Church, the church with the capital C. As you know, the Great Commission tells us to go and make disciples, to gather them into the church through baptism, and to teach them to obey. So as part of our uh, sermon series, we've already talked about the going church, Today is the last Sunday that we'll be addressing the gathered church. And then, for the next part, for the teaching church, we're actually going to teach through the book of Galatians to demonstrate how the apostles taught the church. So before we go any further, though, let's let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Father, as we gather on this Mother's Day, uh, we are thankful for our mothers and also for all the mothers that are here this morning gathered with us. Help us to honor them. And Father, we also recognize that many are grieving because they've lost their mothers. And Father, we pray that you would comfort them in a special way today. Father, the purpose of our coming together, of our gathering, is is to glorify Jesus. So we pray that he would be honored as we delve into your word today. Father, help us to understand what a precious gift we hold in our hands with your scripture. Help us to, to truly know what this means. Father, I pray that you, as we look into it, that you through your Spirit, would guide us into all truth. Help us to glorify and honor Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. The people's last words are important. 
if someone is approaching death, they don't beat around the bush. They're going to pass on to those that are left behind words that have consequence and significance. Maybe that's why scripture records so many last words. We have the last words of Jacob, Moses, Joshua, Samuel, David, Jesus on the cross, and Stephen. Our text today comes from the pastoral epistle of 2 Timothy. This is believed to be Paul's last letter. Most Bible commentators believe that Paul wrote this from his second imprisonment in Rome, awaiting death. He writes this letter as a spiritual father to Timothy, who's a pastor. Paul pours out his heart on matters that are pressing for Timothy and for his church. This very personal letter is God's timeless message for us today. Paul passes on words of consequence and significance. And in so doing, he instructs the gathered church throughout the ages on how we are to communicate God's word. We'll see from our text today how the gathered church is to abide in the teaching of God's word, how we are to equip ourselves with God's word, and how we're to preach God's word. Paul's first charge to Timothy is to abide in the teaching of the word. We pick up our text in verse 14. Paul's been talking about false teachers. That is for you, Timothy, in contrast to these false teachers, Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. The sacred writings Paul is referring to is the Old Testament scripture. Continue, Timothy, in what you have learned from the sacred writings. The Greek word for continue here is meno, which is often translated in the ESV as stay there. It means to remain or to abide. There are many false teachers out there. They're always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. So abide, Timothy, in the teaching of God's word. So hopefully you can hear me better now. <laughs> All right. Thank you. All right, so uh, we're talking about uh, Timothy abiding in the Word. And uh, we said that um, it, the word continue there is from the word, the Greek word meno, and it means to abide, because there are many false teachers. And so Paul is telling Timothy that these false teachers are never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. So he wants Timothy to abide in the teaching of God's word. In verse 14, he says, Knowing from whom you learned it, and how, how from childhood you have been, to, been acquainted with the sacred writings. So who is it that taught Timothy? Who is the whom referring to? So if you... Um, Look at the ESV, if you're reading the ESV, you'll notice the footnote on the word whom. It says the Greek for whom 
is plural. In chapter 1, Paul says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, the faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. So who is it that taught Timothy from his childhood? It was his mother and his grandmother. Consider also the trustworthiness of the teachers. His mother and grandmother had a sincere faith, according to chapter 1, verse 5. You teach your children convictions by what you say and by the way you live. So if you're speaking but not living it out, it means little. On the other hand, living without speaking really doesn't have a lot of impact. But speaking and living out a sincere faith together are a powerful combination. Lois and Eunice did so, and by God's grace, they passed on their faith to the next generation. So parents consider the three ways in which Jews taught their children scripture. First, there were Bible stories. They talked about the heroes of their faith. Second was memorization of scripture. The children memorized parts of the Old Testament. Third was a question and answer format. This is where we get the idea of catechism from. So let me ask a question. How many of you children, maybe at treasure seekers or at home, are learning a catechism? Raise your hand. Thank you. All right. Several of you. Thanks. So if you're a parent or maybe hope to be one someday, think about a scenario in which you're sitting at the dinner table. You ask your children a question, and each child answers kind of with their own ideas. Then you have them repeat the answer to, from the catechism, and you talk about what it means. And then finally, you repeat this often enough that your children know it by heart. This is likely one of the ways Timothy was taught the sacred writings from childhood. In addition to Timothy's mother and grandmother, the whom in verse 14 also includes Paul himself. We know this from chapter 2 where Paul says, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men. Earlier, Paul tells Timothy, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Timothy, I've poured into you. I've taught you. Now guard the good deposit that's been entrusted to you. So Tim, uh, the Apostle Paul here is like a relay runner, and he passes the baton to the next generation. God creates and shapes his people by his word. As the people of God, we are to proclaim the word of God in our homes and in our gatherings. But this starts with abiding in the word. Next, we're to be a church which communicates God, God's word. And so to do so, we must be equipped by God's word. Paul reminds Timothy of what he no doubt already knows, but it's important, so he says it again. And in so doing, 
he gives us one of the most concise explanations in the New Testament of how God's word equips us for the Christian life. His explanation tells us four things about God's written word. The first has to do with the origin of God's word, and the last three with the work of God's word in our lives. He tells us that God's word is God-breathed, that God's word makes us wise for salvation, that God's word is profitable to us, and that God's word is sufficient. First, God's word is God-breathed. The first step in being equipped by God's word is understanding its divine origin. Paul took the word God and the word breathe, and he put them together. This compound word doesn't exist anywhere else in Scripture or in Greek writings and literature. So Paul literally coined this term because it expresses the inspiration of Scripture. God used human authors with different personalities and writing styles over thousands of years. But at the end of the day, Scripture says exactly what God wants it to say. The implications of this are enormous. It means to disbelieve Scripture is to disbelieve God. It means that Scripture is true without error. Not only does it not contain error, but it is the standard of truth. Another implication is that God's word is able to make us wise for salvation. We see this in verse 15. The sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The sacred writings, remember, we're talking about the Old Testament scripture written before Jesus came. So how is it that it can make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus? Well, the the answer is to remember how much of redemption story is told in the Old Testament. It's where we learn of a fallen humanity that comes up short of God's holy standard. That the holiness and justice of God demands a blood sacrifice and atonement for sin. That there's a chasm between a holy God and sinful man that not even the sacrifice of animals can atone for. That we have no resources within ourselves by which to be saved. The Old Testament points to the coming one who brings salvation, the Son of Man, the Holy One. Job proclaimed, For I know that my Redeemer lives And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. Isaiah prophesied of the suffering servant, the Messiah, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. The Old Testament is able to make us wise for salvation. So, That when we finally see Jesus in the New Testament, we cry, that's him. He's the one that we've been waiting for. He is our hope. The core of the gospel is found in the whole of Scripture. God's word placed in a readied heart 
produces salvation. Another implication of the inspiration of Scripture is that God's word is profitable to us. Verse 16 continues, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. First is teaching. The word for teaching is didaskalia. It means doctrine. God's word teaches us the truth about ourselves, about the world, and about God. Next is reproof. That's refuting error. It's the negative side of imparting truth. For correction, that means to restore to a right state, to straighten someone up. And God's word is profitable for training in righteousness. It shows us how to live in a way that is pleasing to God because scripture comes from God himself. All of it is profitable in a range of ways, ultimately leading to righteousness. Another implication of the inspiration of scripture is that God's word is sufficient. We see this in verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What do we have to add to the word of God to be complete as a Christian? What good work does God's word not equip us to do? Nothing. The doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture means that God's Word tells us everything that we need to know for salvation, everything that we need to know to trust Him, everything that we need to know for sanctification. There is no good work, no duty of man to God that Scripture does not equip us to do. Everything that we need to know is there. Scripture, the breathed out word of God, equips us for the Christian life. This all starts, though, with spending time in God's word. We can't be equipped by principles that we don't understand. We can't be taught or reproved or rebuked by scripture that we haven't read. We can't be trained in righteousness when we hardly know the book we say we believe. I'd like to share an illustration with you. It's from my own experience, so you can take it or leave it, but maybe someone will find this helpful. In my experience, spiritual hunger is the opposite of physical hunger. So if I don't eat for four hours, I get physically hungry. If I don't eat for eight hours, I'm really hungry. But the more I taste of God's word, the hungrier I am for more. I'm like the psalmist who says, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. On the other hand, when I'm not in the word, my spiritual senses become dull. I don't feel the hunger. I become apathetic. I'm starving and don't even know it. Being equipped by Scripture starts with spending time in God's Word, but it doesn't end there. In an important one-another passage, 
Paul tells the church at Rome, I myself am satisfied that you yourselves are able to instruct one another. Instruction is not the exclusive domain of the elders. It's not just for those that are designated as teachers. Rather, the people of God are to instruct one another in the word of God. So what might this look like? Well, it means that on a Sunday morning or at community group, we're sharing how God is convicting us, how he's teaching us, how he's molding us with his word. You know, I really love to hear how when members of Remedy are equipping each other with God's word, and especially when it's not a church program, but it's something that happens organically. Like when a few sisters in Christ decide to have a Bible study together, or when two brothers agree to hold each other accountable to be in the word every day, or when a chat group springs up as they read through the Bible here and share their thoughts daily on what they're reading. May we grow in that. May we be a church where God's word is not just preached in the pulpit, but is in the mouth of the members, where our speech gravitates to the word of God, where we start out talking about the ball game, but we end up talking about God's word because equipping with the, each other with God's word is our passion. Our time on this earth is short. If as a church we communicate everything to the world and each other except God's word, what have we done? If we talk about everything but scripture, what have we accomplished? Do we want to teach people? Do we want to refute error? Do we want to set people on the right path? Do we want people to become saved and become everything God intends them to be? Then preach the word. Give them the word. God creates and shapes his people by his word. As the people of God, we proclaim the word of God to each other in our homes and in the gathering. To do this, we must be equipped by God's word. Paul begins the final charge of our text in chapter 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. One Bible commentator said that, that Paul's charge to Timothy is in, quote, solemn eschatological perspective. So eschatology is the study of last things, of end times. So I think that's just a fancy way for the commentator to say that Paul kept the big picture in view. He began with the end in mind. There's coming a day when Christ will return and judge the world. So we must work while it's day because the night is coming when no one can work. So knowing what's coming, Paul gives five imperatives, all of which relate to word. He says, preach, be ready, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. First, Paul tells Timothy, preach the word. The Greek verb here is keruso. It's often translated as proclaim. So in ancient times, if a king 
wanted to communicate with his people, he would send out his heralds. You know, you've seen them depicted in movies, right? Hear ye, hear ye, the proclamation of the king. Right? So here Paul is saying, Timothy Caruso, preach, proclaim, publicly herald the good news of the king. I'm so thankful that a distinguishing characteristic of remedy is the expositional preaching of God's word. Expositional preaching means exposing God's word, explaining it, and applying it to the life of the congregation. I recently Googled the words church growth. Interestingly enough, in my search, not one of the so-called church growth experts mentioned expositional preaching. One website suggested that you should, quote, generate a lot of five-star Google reviews, end quote. So evidently, Google is the source of church growth. Another expert said, do a survey to find out what the people in the community are interested in hearing and preach on that. Give the people what they want to hear. In contrast, Paul charges Timothy to preach the word, to proclaim what is often difficult and offensive. To herald a message which Paul says is the aroma of life among those who are being saved, but a fragrance of death to the perishing. The next verb in Greek is ephistime. It's translated in the ESV as be ready. It means to be at hand, to stand by. Be standing by with the word of God, Timothy, in season and out of season. Be ready to share when it's a popular message and when it's not a popular message. Sometimes we say, I'm just waiting for an opportunity to share the gospel. When what we really mean is I'm just waiting for an opportunity to share the gospel when it's popular, when I won't look foolish, when other people won't look down on me. But Paul says, be standing by with the word in season and out of season. Next, we see parallelism with what we just read about in chapter 3, verse 16. It said, all the scripture is profitable, therefore, uh, it's profitable for reproof. So, in chapter 4, he says, therefore, Timothy, reprove. Use God's word to refute error. The word of God is profitable for correction. Therefore, rebuke. Restore that person to a right state. All the scripture is profitable for teaching. Chapter 3, verse 16, therefore teach with complete patience. Chapter 4, verse 2. In a different 3.16, in Colossians 3.16, Paul says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. We're to use God's word to teach and admonish one another. This is something we need to grow in where we earn the right through loving relationships to speak truth into one another's life. And not just in giving, but in receiving tough love, where we're not offended by it. Verse 3, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, 
but having itching ears will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. There are many churches today that, in the name of inclusiveness, never talk about sin. They emphasize the love of God, but never mention his holiness. One pastor said that he wanted to focus on meeting people's needs, not attacking their sin. That's a strange thing to say to a fallen humanity whose sin problem is our greatest need. The question for us is, how do we endure sound teaching? Now, endure is an interesting word related to sound teaching. It's not at all what I would have expected. I mean, we endure trials, right? We endure hardship. But sound teaching? After all, sound teaching can comfort us. It can encourage us. It can patiently teach us. But it can also reprove us. It can rebuke us. It can exhort us. Why do people not endure sound teaching? Why with itching ears do they accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions? Because they love sin. Because they don't want to give up their sinful lifestyles. They want someone who will make them feel good about the way they live. This appetite, though, for ear-tickling preaching has a terrible end. Verse 4 and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Preaching that fails to confront sin with the word of God does not meet people's needs. If you tell me I'm basically a good person, why do I need to be saved? Saved from what? Ultimately, it fails people utterly. It gives them false hope. We must see our true condition before we can understand the gospel. We must understand that God is loving, but he is also holy. And we are all sinners who stand condemned before him. But our loving and holy God has made a way. The gospel, the good news of God is this, that God gave his son to die in our place. Jesus died on the cross to atone for sin, and God raised him from the dead. And so God calls men and women everywhere to repentance and faith in Jesus. Only Jesus can save us and bring us into a right relationship with God. Scripture says, For our sake he, God, made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. The best way to tell someone the gospel is to exposit the word. Thus Paul charges Timothy to preach what? Preach the word. Because God creates and shapes his people by his word. And as the people of God, we proclaim the word of God to each other in our homes and in our gatherings. And so the gathered church is to preach the word. We started out this morning by talking about how 2 Timothy is believed to be Paul's last letter. He writes while imprisoned in Rome, awaiting death. 
Paul pours out his heart on matters that are pressing for Timothy and his church. There are many false teachers, so Paul exhorts Timothy to abide in the teaching of the word. And like a runner in a relay race, he passes the baton to the next generation. To be a word-communicating church, we need to be equipped by God's word. Paul reminds Timothy of the divine origin of Scripture. And because it's breathed out by God, Scripture can make us wise for salvation. All of it is profitable in a range of ways, ultimately leading to righteousness. God's word is sufficient. There is no good work, no duty of man to God that Scripture does not equip us to do. Finally, Paul charges Timothy to preach the word when it's popular and when it's not popular. The church is to endure sound teaching even when it confronts our sin because an appetite for sin, for ear-tickling preaching has a terrible end. God creates and shapes his people by his word. So as the people of God, we proclaim the word of God in our homes and in our gathering. God calls us to be a word-communicating church. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would give us a fresh and new love for your word. Help us to be, Father, like that blessed man in, in Psalm 1 who delights in the law of the Lord, and it is, is his meditation day and night. Help us to be diligent to, to pass it on to our children, to, to uh, talk about it when we sit in our house when we walk by the way, when we lie down, and when we rise up. And Father, I pray that you would help us to teach and admonish one another. Father, that we would grow in that, that we would love each other in that way. Help us to be in your word, to be people of your word. May we do so in a way that glorifies Jesus. Amen.